0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew schiestel and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. Catherine Lomas. On May 6th, 2021, an episode was published with Dr. Lomas where we had a conversation about the First Punic War. Dr. Lomas was back on the show in an episode published on June 20th, 2021, and we covered the interregnum, the period after the First Punic War from Carthage's perspective. So that was called Carthage after the First Punic War with Dr. Catherine Lomas. And again, that was published on June 20th, 21, 2021, rather. So today, Dr. Lomas is back on the show. And we're going to have a conversation now more from Rome's perspective after the First Punic War. And so we're going to have a conversation about Rome after the First Punic War. Uh, So somewhat uh, diametrically opposite from the uh, previous episode on Carthage after the First Punic War. Dr. Lomas is Honorary Research Fellow in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at Durham University based in the UK. She has written many publications over her career, including a couple books as examples. She's author of The Rise of Rome which was published in the U.S. by Harvard University Press and published in the U.K. by Profile Books. And she's author of the book, Rome and the Western Greeks, 350 B.C. to A.D. 200, Conquest and Acculturation in Southern Italy, which was published by Routledge. Welcome back on the show, Catherine.
1: Hi, it's good to be back. Nice to talk to you
0: again. It is wonderful to have you back uh, on the show, Catherine. I'm looking forward to the conversation as well. To start the Uh, dialogue off and I'm going to ask a question that was similar to the question that I asked in the last episode that we did um, on Carthage after the first Punic War. So can you uh, summarize how the first Punic War or rather why the first Punic War started and how it wrapped up?
1: Um, Well, it was basically a struggle for domination, uh, which maybe took place in Western Sicily. Um, Western Sicily, that's the point where it began in, in the 260s BC, was basically a Carthaginian protectorate. And Rome had become drawn into this war because of a conflict with um, the city of Messina on the northwest tip of Sicily. Um, and it became very much um, a, confl- a conflict for, for domination of Sicily and the islands. Um, Rome and Carthage were have both been developing as, as big powers in the western Mediterranean. Um, and th- this was basically the first of the, the big showdowns between them. Um, So it really broke broke out in in 264 um, as part of a three-way conflict between um, uh, Rome, Syracuse and Carthage for control of Messina, um, and then developed into a war in which um, partly fought at sea and partly on land in Sicily, uh, in which Rome uh, really grabbed control of of Western Sicily. Um, And by the time it ended in 241, um, Rome... Imposed quite a punitive peace, peace treaty on Carthage, which involved quite a, a large war indemnity, um, and also uh, it seized control of, of, of the western part of Sicily. Uh, the rest of Sicily was, was basically ruled by Syracuse, uh, the Greek, main Greek city of the island. Uh, but the Car- Carthaginians had, had to had to leave um, Sicily, um, and retreat back to North Africa. And then subsequently, they went on to develop, uh, as we saw in the last episode, uh, an, an, an empire in, in Spain to, to, kind of try and, to try and compensate for that. Um, but basically, this re-established, it put Carthage very much on the back foot, was mm-hmm. huge re- reputational damage in terms of its economic and military capabilities. Uh, and it also really, really established Rome for the first time as a power expanding beyond the confines of Italy. Um, so that's basically where where, where we're at in, in 241, that Rome has just acquired its first overseas province in, in Western Sicily, and it's really starting to make its presence felt beyond beyond Italy for the first time.
0: Do Is there much known about um, what happened with the Greek people that would have been living on Sicily after the first Punic War, after... Uh, Rome um, gained hegemony of that part of the island?
1: Yeah, um, I mean the the, uh, trajectory of of Greek Sicily is rather different Uh, it's basically um, the story of the gradual rise to domination of Syracuse which um, was the most prominent of the Greek cities on the island and that that really came to to dominate most of the other Greek cities Um, and the the trajectory of Sicily in the 4th and early 3rd centuries is very much um, you know, Carthage trying, uh, sorry, not Carthage, Syracuse uh, trying to, to, to establish its domination over the rest of the Greeks, but also to push back against the Carthaginians. Uh, so there, there, there is a, a sort of constant toing and froing of, of warfare between Syracuse and, and Carthage on the island, uh, which is really how Rome gets drawn in, because uh, Syracuse initially besieges Messina. Um, and the Massinians uh, appeal both to Carthage and, and to Rome for help, um, and then when Rome answers that call, it, it, it basically sends Carthaginian forces away, and they, they then turn against Mycena. um uh, So it becomes a, a very messy three-way conflict for for a couple of years. Uh, but the Greek, the history of the Greeks in, in the on the island after the First Punic War is very much that um, uh, Syracuse, having initially fought against Rome, then. Makes peace with Rome, becomes a Roman ally, um, and here on the second, who's, who's the ruler of Syracuse at this point? Um, you know, remains a very staunch Roman ally uh, until the early stages of the Second Punic War, which, after which, he dies, and his successors then break the alliance with Rome, and the, uh, that that's what leads Rome to conquer the rest of the island. that um, it, it, it then. Uh, finds itself, you know, betrayed by Syracuse as its main ally and and, and has to go and and conquer the rest of the rest of Sicily. Um, So the the Greeks of Syracuse actually actually do quite nicely out of the war because it it rules one of their main um, rivals in the form of Carthage. Uh, But at the same time, it also draws uh, Syracuse into alliance with Rome um and that of course has is in expressing because rome's a much bigger power than syracuse so it becomes very much more of a sort of client state although you know obviously the Sy- Syracuses wouldn't have seen it like that
0: okay so um so it so is it fair to say is it reasonable to say that um a part of the island then was a, a after the first punic war like like shortly after was a a part of it was a um like you, I think you mentioned the term client state. Is that how a scholar would look at at uh, a p- part of it? So it wasn't considered uh, Rome. It was still considered a different uh, a different different state, but uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, like almost like a vassal state.
1: Yeah, I th- well, I, th- I think it might be pushing it a little bit. Maybe I was a bit naughty talking about it as a client state because I'm pretty sure that the Syracusans wouldn't have seen it like that. Mm-hmm. Syracuse was a, a big and powerful city. Um, but you're right that Sicily was effectively partitioned because the, the Carthaginian area um, around Palermo and uh, Trapani, as they are now, uh, on the west of, of the island, uh, becomes uh, the first Roman province. Uh, but the rest of the, ra- the, remain of the island remains... Independence, um, nominally a sort of independent city states but really a sort of Carthaginian—sorry, uh, a Syracuse protectorate. Um, so effect- effectively, you've got a partition situation where, you know, part of the island is under Roman rule, but the 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 other three quarters of it is is, is um, you know under control of Syracuse, which is a an independent city-state, uh, but in alliance with Rome.
0: In this. Um, um... You know, I'm looking for the kind of the the, the, the most appropriate uh, term, but this this state that at this point in time isn't technically a Roman state. Um, I think you said most of the the uh, the, the island. Um, so at this point in time, um, uh, it's still um, for the whole interregnum. So that whole period, uh, it it still is a sovereign, somewhat of a sovereign state in the in this period yeah. that we're speaking about
1: yeah the Greek 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 Sicily would, would, was, was, was still with its own independent state um, or a series of states under the under the leadership of syracuse uh, it's only that western corner that was previously Carthaginian territory which is ruled directly by Rome um, and that in itself is is actually quite a departure for Rome because uh, when it conquered Italy um, in the second half of the Century and the early years of the third century, uh, it didn't seek, it didn't even try and govern, govern it directly. Um, what it did was put into place a series of um, networks of alliances with Italian states, which remained independent, autonomous states but allied to Rome, uh, with obligations to Rome like. Basically, having the same friends and enemies, so they had the same foreign policy. Um, they had to send troops, to the Roman army, if Rome wanted them to, uh, and that was in return for Roman protection. And it was actually quite a neat solution to how something which basically just has the mechanisms of a city-state, which Rome did at that stage, uh, governs this big network, big area of territory. Because obviously, it doesn't have the administrative capability to govern it directly. Um, so what it does instead is. Uh, create a network of um, some cities which have been given Roman citizenship, uh, some which have been given a, an alternative legal status called Latin status, which has legal privileges but not, not as much as Roman citizenship. Uh, it founds colonies uh, and then it has this whole network of allies who are bound to Rome and Rome can help itself to their military capability. Uh, but they don't have... they're, they're all, still, all the communities are still self-governing so they don't have to... Rome doesn't have the, the hassle of administering them. Uh, but once it moves into Sicily, that, that model is thought not really to work for Sicily. Um, so it sets up for the first time a, a system of direct rule where a Roman governor is sent to the Roman province of uh, Sicilia, which is the, at that stage just the, the western part of the island, um, and uh, runs it directly. Um, so this is really the first, point, the first point at which the model of provincial government starts to develop.
0: Um, I mean, it's still very rudimentary at this stage, but it's it's quite an important development for what happens later. Okay, um, is it known the the um, the territory that is still its own state, um, Syracuse? Right, that's what we would ca- yeah. call that. Yeah. Is it known if they were paying taxes in some form to Rome? No, no, they were. Or tributes? No, no,
1: no, okay. no, they didn't. They 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 were an independent independent ally, so they 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 they'd declare an alliance and they would have, you know, agree, agree not to fight each other and to help each other out if need be, but there'd be no, you know, no relationship beyond that. Um, so it, it, it was a complete, uh, Syracuse and, and its various satellite states were completely independent.
0: Okay. All right. So that is, uh, does that, for this conversation, sufficiently cover off the, the, the island Sicily? Or is there anything else you want to cover before we move on?
1: Uh, no, I think that covers, pretty much covers Sicily. Okay. I mean, the, the next big event in Sicilian history is really the, the second Punic War, because uh, what happened, which, you know, I don't, I don't want to encroach on, on the future episodes, but <laughs> basically that's the point at which, which Rome t- takes over the whole island. So, I mean, that, that's very much surely a future episode.
0: Okay. sounds sounds good. And and you and I have that episode in the works right now. All right, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Um. Uh. So. Okay. So what's what else do you want to cover then? In in somewhat of a chronology, and we're talking. Are we talking two forty one to two eighteen? Uh, the, the the period for everybody. Just yeah so, yeah, okay. yeah yeah. Just, yeah but, okay. Uh, speaking. What yeah. are what are what's what are another uh, major event then in this period um, from Rome's perspective?
1: Yeah. Well, it's it, it's actually quite a difficult period to create a, a, a sort of coherent narrative for because uh, everything's sort of a little bit bitty in this period. Um, there are one or two major, one or two political changes in Rome, which sound quite tactical but do have have implications for how Rome develops internally. And there's a couple of overseas war wars in Illyria, what's now the Dalmatian coast. Um, which is, is interesting because it shows that Rome isn't sort of rowing back on, expanding outside Italy, it's still doing it. Um, and there's also an ongoing problem in northern Italy where Rome starts moving north of the Po Valley into what's, what was then Celtic territory. And that, that, that is important for how the, uh, the Second Punic War breaks out, uh, which I, I think we covered at the end of the last episode, if I remember rightly, mm-hmm. uh, because
0: it, it brings Rome more into conflict with what Carthage is up to in Spain. Okay.
1: So the, the the basic the two basic tragi- the two basic events are what's going on in Illyria and what's going on in northern Italy, uh, and uh, one or two minor political changes going on in Berlin itself.
0: Okay. So let's uh, well, let's let's take them in the order there that you uh, me- mentioned them. So let's uh, so so what is Illyria? Can you can you can you explain what Illyria is, and um, uh, then we'll take it from from there.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, it's basically the area that's now the Dalmatian coast uh, of um, Croatia uh, and Albania. And um, the Illyrians, uh, they're they're interesting people because, uh, strictly speaking, I should probably refer to them as the Ardei, which are the main tribe. uh, But I'll stick with Illyrians because that's what the ancient sources call them. Um, And they controlled the central part of what's now the Dalmatian coast. And they were a traditional ally, probably a sort of client state, given that it quite small, of the kingdom of Macedon, um, uh, the, the kingdom you know, ruled by the descendants, descend- the, the successors of Alexander the Great, uh, and Epirus, which is pretty much modern Albania. Um, but the interesting thing about the Illyrians is they're also quite an important regional naval power. Uh, they have a a very formidable f- a fleet of small, fast warships, uh, which the Romans called Lembi, and they have a reputation for piracy. So they have uh, quite a potential to disrupt in the Adriatic. Um, I mean, one of the things that the Romans didn't like about, about them was their the, the habit of, dis- of, of disrupting Adriatic trade. Um, because Rome has now has a colony at uh, What's uh, Brundisium, what, what's now Brindisi? So it's got a major port on the Adriatic coast. Um,
0: it's also an ally of Tarentum on the the heel of Italy, uh, which is a Greek city
1: and which uh, is also a major port. So obviously, Rome's got quite a lot of trading interests in the the area. Um, so the last thing it really wants is pirates. Um, but the backstory to this, uh, which unfortunately we can't put a strict date on is that at some point in the middle of the third century, uh, the Illyrians acquire a, quite a dynamic new leader. Um, it's, it's a monarchy, so he's a king, King Agron. Um, and the Illyrians start to expand. Um, and effectively what they do is that the core tribe of the Ardae starts making alliances
0: with little small tribes inland uh, and expands its power that, that
1: way. Uh, but it also starts expanding down the coast. Um, uh, and the, the method seems to be naval raids uh, with this rather uh, you know, fast-moving and fierce fleet, uh, followed up by, by, by raids with a land army. Um, and they got far, far enough south to start uh, making a nuisance of themselves to the Adriatic Greek cities, um, places like Apollonia and Epidemnus, uh which is now Duras in, in Albania. Just to give you a sort of modern mm-hmm. orientation for it. Um, and the other thing which encouraged this was that there was a power vacuum in Epirus, uh, which had been a kingdom um, ruled by, I would say, a, a royal family related to that of Macedon. Uh, but in 234 BC, its king died and it split into, it stopped being a kingdom and split into a, a federation of four semi independent states. Uh, So that basically creates a a power vacuum on the border of this, you know, outwardly expanding Illyrian state. um, And opens up possibilities for Agron to create all sorts of nuisance value for himself. Um, And by the late uh, 230s, uh, he seems to have become involved in a war between Macedon and the Aetolian League, which is a league of Greek city-states in in northwest Greece, um, and was responsible for... Uh, inflicting quite a heavy military defeat on Atolia, um, which had the Greek world absolutely rocked back on its heels because the Atolians had a reputation for being quite fierce warriors. Um, so the Greek cities on the um, that sort of northwest coast of Greece and what's the, the coast of what's now Albania uh, were starting to get really quite worried. Uh, some of them were starting to send embassies to Rome saying, help, basically, please come and help us um Rome doesn't seem to have taken any action at that point, but it was already concerned and it was particularly concerned because um, Roman traders um, and also Italian traders from cities which are allied to, to, to Rome and therefore Rome had a, a duty to, to protect uh, was starting to to, to um, be impacted by by uh, piracy um. And the thing that really tipped this over into war with Rome was that uh, Agron died. Uh, and unfortunately, I can't put a date on that for you. Uh, but he was, con- he was succeeded by his second wife, Queen Tutor, uh, who was acting as, a, as a, um, a regent for her stepson, a man called Pinaes. Uh, boy at that stage called uh, And Queen, Queen Tutor seems to have been really quite formidable. Um, uh, she was you know, one of the few ancient female war leaders that we know of. And she seems to have been even more successful at expanding Illyrian power uh, because she managed to establish control of the coast of Western Greece down as far as the Gulf Gulf of Corinth. So she really gets quite a way south Um, and also captures Phoenike, which is the richest city in Epirus, Um, and also a big centre for trade with Italy. Um, So, you know, again, we've got more disruption for for, for traders Um, and. I mean, our sources, which is mainly polybius basically says she encouraged piracy, and that was the, the thing that really the Romans didn't like. Um, uh, I mean, piracy is one of those things that it's difficult to evaluate because being a pirate tends to be something that barbarians do. You know, it's not, not quite something that's, that's quite civilized. Um, so, you know, it's it's a way of delegitimizing the, the, the Illyrians. I mean, nobody knows whether she was just aggressively raiding other people's ships or whether other people's ships were doing something to annoy her or, or quite what uh, but anyway she had this reputation for encouraging piracy and disrupting trade uh, and it also you know made a big push down down the western coast of, of, of Greece um, so that's really the background um, and what really all kicks it off is that in 229, uh, the Romans get so worried about attacks on shipping uh, belonging to themselves and to their Italian allies uh, that they send an embassy to, to Queen Tutor to protest um, except Tudor doesn't really want to know about this, she sent them away um, and subsequently on the way home, according to Polybius um, writing obviously somewhat later in the middle of the 2nd century BC uh, he says that one of the envoys was, was murdered um, and that Rome blamed Blame tutor. Rome reckoned the tutor would had one of their envoys bumped off. Um, so that caused war to Rome to declare war, and it sent uh, land troops and a fairly substantial naval force into the area. Um, so that's basically the, 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 what triggers the, this first Illyrian war.
0: Um, and to clarify a point that you made catherine um earlier um before the before these events um you'd mentioned that um a state and this is the point i want to clarify went to rome to, to protest something was that the Illyrian the Alde state or was that a different um, uh, state in that in that area that initially went to Rome to, to protest? Yeah,
1: uh, that 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 was one of the Greek cities. Um, there there are a whole clutch of Greek cities, uh, which the main ones are Epidamnus and, and Apollonia down, down that coast, um, and. Uh, they are the ones that are really on the, the sharp end of the Illyrian expansion. So they they, they are the, the interesting thing about this is that some some Greeks are already looking to Rome as allies or protect or as a protector again against these barbarians that are bearing as they would see them that are bearing down on them. Um, and so basically, it was some of the Greek cities that were in the you know in the, in the, in the line of the Illyrian advance that were um, looking looking to Rome for protection.
0: In this ALDE, oh yeah, Go ahead, sorry, Cameron. I was
1: yep. just going to say that I get, I, I guess if they have a lucrative trading relationship with uh, Italy, then you know that that's perhaps their... Uh, and if the other possible source of protection, Cyprus, is starting to fall apart, then you know that that is you know an, an indication that the centre of the political centre of gravity in the area is changing, and uh, the people are already starting to look west to Rome for, for help.
0: This um, Alde state, was it, uh, you'd mentioned Ma- Macedonia, Was it? so was it previously part of the kingdom of, of Macedon? Uh,
1: no, it was one of a series of um, small independent tribes that sort of uh, live on the edge of um, Macedon and Epirus, uh, very much in the same sort of area, as, as I say, it's, it's basically what's now Albania, um, so it's, it's west of Macedon. Um, But it's basically basically the the Illyrian area is the area which is now the Dalmatian coast of Croatia.
0: Okay. And... um perfectly fine given the the amount of time that that, that we have because we, we, we always as you know keep the episodes under under 60 minutes. so perfectly fine to summar, yeah. summarize summarize the, these events. but can you co- cover what occurs then because you, you got to in the chronology what sounds like the start start of a war. can you cover what yeah. what uh, what, 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 ha- what happened and also put put some time time frames uh, to the events as, as well if it's known?
1: Okay. Uh, Well, there are two. Well, there there are actually three Illyrian walls, but one of them is a lot later, so it sits outside the the time frame of this episode. Uh, But the two which do fall within our 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 time frame are um, the first one was two twenty nine to two twenty eight, and the second one was two twenty to two eighteen. So they're they're both quite short. Um, The first one. in 229, uh, we have this incident where Rome claims that some of its diplomatic envoys have been murdered by Tutor, and they, they send, them, send them troops in. Um, uh, by the time they arrive, uh, Tudor has uh, captured Corsaira, uh, modern Corfu. Um, so she's working her way down the, some of the bigger island, Greek islands in the, uh, in the area. And she's besieging Epidamus again. Uh, and at that point, a fleet of 200 Roman ships arrives. Uh, which is interesting because they're obviously sending quite a big force. Um, you know, they're not messing around. Uh, and she's taken by surprise. Um, and in the end, uh, there's a certain amount of trickery involved because the Roman commander, uh uncle Fulvius Cantumulus, uh, persuades uh, the uh, governor of Corsaira, uh, imposed by Tutor, man um, uncle Demetrius of Pharos, uh, to defect to him. Uh, so Corsara changes sides under the leadership of this guide, Demetrius, who's uh, abandoned alliance with Tudor and become an ally of Rome. Uh, And the island becomes uh, what's known as Lemicus Pobli Romani, literally a friend of the Roman people, which means that it's under Roman protection. Um, And at that point, the Roman land army has been shipped over from Brundisium. Uh, and it, the, the Romans forced Tudor back towards her main capital uh, to play a place called, called Reason, uh which is now which is on the gulf of what's now the Gulf of Cotter. Um And so Rome pushes Tudor back really quite quickly, it's just a, a one-year campaign. Um, and at that point Rome withdraws its main army and just leaves a small force to, to keep an eye on things. Uh, and then by 228 there's a peace treaty which has been signed um, and this forces tutor to sit to, to give up most of the the area that she's conquered so it really seems to be about pushing her back into her sort of heartlands um, making her give up the bits that are upsetting Rome's Greek allies um, and uh, also they, they put uh, limitations on where the, where the Illyrian navy can go. It's not allowed to sail, to sail south at a certain point. Mm. Um, and she's forced to pay uh, to make a payment to Rome. Uh, it's not very clear whether the payment's a one-off war indemnity or whether it, whether, it, whether she's actually paying tribute to Rome at this point. Um, but what it really means is that uh, Tutor has had to move back into the sort of heartland of her Illyrian territory and get, get rid of most of the conquests. Um, And it also means that Rome has gained control of some key ports, um, including Corsaira itself, which is obviously quite a big island dominating the seaways in in that part of the world. Um, And also, Rome has managed to make alliances with some of the inland tribes uh, on the other side of of Illyrian, on the eastern side of Illyrian territory. Um, So these these really do become Roman client states. Uh, So it's now quite difficult uh, for Tuta to link her back with Macedon because uh, she's got this ring of Roman clients on on, on the eastern border. Um, So at that point, Rome really just seems to be really trying to sort of corral Hilaria so that, you know, it can't can't get out of hand again. Um, Which sort of worked for a number of years. Uh, but then, by in the period 228 to 220, um, Tutor dies, and she's succeeded by Demetrius of Pharos, who, you know, is supposedly a, a, an alive of Rome. Uh, but he's got ambitions of his own, uh, because at some point along the line, he's managed to uh, marry the first wife of King Agrom, um, uh, who is still alive. Um, we don't we don't know an awful lot about the background of why there were two wives on the, on, on the scene. But anyway, Agron's first wife is still there. Um, so Demetrius, as Pharos, manages to, to marry into the royal family, and that gives him a claim on the throne. Um, and at that point, in this period of eight years uh, between the two wars, he starts consolidating his power um, by expanding into Greece again um, and renewing the traditional alliance with Macedon. Uh, so, again, he starts pushing south until he gets to the Gulf of Corinth. Um, and, of course, by that stage, um, what he's attacking as he's doing that is, uh, are actually states which are, which are Roman allies, uh, because Rome has started making alliances with uh, the places like Epidemnus and Apollonia. Um, uh, so that is really what triggers the, the Second War. Uh, it's the fact that Tudor's successor has started to get ideas about um, reasserting Illyrian power
0: um catherine um do yeah. you do you know or um or perhaps you you need to infer but it might be a tough thing to infer um when 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 he began uh attacking allies of of rome do you do you think he knew do you think he do you think he knew that uh these these uh states were allies of of rome
1: uh that's a difficult question um i'd imagine he probably does. Uh, Because, I mean, there there has been this peace treaty, which sets out quite clearly uh, in 228 what Miriam is and isn't allowed to do. Um, But it it is an interesting question, because, you know, it does really pose the question of, you know, if he knows he's attacking an ally of Rome, then this is really not not a terribly smart thing to do. Um,
0: It's provocative.
1: I guess at this point, you know, Rome is still largely an Italian power, and he may have been gambling that Rome had got other things on its mind, and retaliate, um, which is not actually a daft calculation, because um, one of the things which um, is interleaved with this is, the, uh, is that Rome has this series of campaigns in Northern Italy, um, uh, which run concurrently pretty much with the, the Illyrian Wars, uh, and Rome seems to be kept pretty busy with, with with those campaigns during this period. So it may be that Demetrios, you know, is, is, is aware that Rome has other stuff going on and, and you know, may, may, may feel that, you know, Rome will be too preoccupied with other things to, to really bother as to what he's getting up to. Um, but that, that actually didn't work out, because uh, in 220, Rome invaded again, uh, having got rather fed up with all this. Um, Demetrios was slightly better prepared than Tudor had been in, in 229, uh, because he'd actually fortified a couple of major bases on the islands uh, of Var, uh, and also a place called Demalium. sorry, I'm afraid I don't, I don't have the modern name for that, which is in the south of Illyria. Uh, so he's he's actually taken precautions. I mean, he's clearly, be, clearly, clearly had some thought that Rome might retaliate. Uh, but Rome manages to lure him out, out of these and he's defeated. Um, so the upshot of all this is that Rome reimposes the Treaty of 228, which limits uh, where Illyrians can go and where, they, where, they, where, navy can, where their navy can sail and things of that sort. Uh, and it uh, installs uh, the son of King Akron uh, this guy Pinis that I mentioned earlier on as king uh, but it li- it limits his kingdom to a small area uh, so really it's not trying to destroy illyrian power it's just trying to sort of pin it back and make sure that you know the illyrians can't do what Rome is really bothered about, which is attacking its Greek allies and um, making a nuisance of itself to uh, shipping in the Adriatic um but that—that's basically the trajectory of the uh, Illyrian Wars. It's—it's it's a sort of rather a rather messy, bitty sort of con- uh, uh, episode. But at the same time, it's quite interesting because it does show that Greek cities on outside Italy and Sicily are starting to look to, to Rome for protection when they're in trouble uh, at this period. Uh, and it also shows that Rome is, is quite is quite concerned about, about uh, sort of trade and shipping. Um, you know, not, not just down the west coast of Italy and in the western Mediterranean, but also in the Adriatic as well. Uh, so it's, there's definitely a sort of a sense that Rome's horizons have been widened a bit.
0: Okay. So, um, yeah, an, an episode or, or several episodes could probably be covered uh, just on the Illyrian Wars. So th- thank you for, for bringing, bringing those up. Um, yeah. Because there's a lot Obviously. of a lot of dimensions uh, to to those, so the show may cover yeah. cover those in some some uh, longer form format at some point.
1: Yeah, I mean we don't know great detail great deal of detail about the Illyrian Wars, but I think I think it's a, they're, they're interesting for what they what they demonstrate about about how you know Rome's, Rome's horizons are opening up and how how Rome is starting to you know appear a bit more on the world stage, not just as an, as an Italian power.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point you're making, Catherine. Okay, so. Are we good? Are we complete uh, for this dialogue on the Illyrian wars? Yes. Then yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So and so, do you want to go to the 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 north uh, northern part of the peninsula then, and a little bit beyond?
1: Yeah. Um, the The issue here is the uh, uh, the Celts in northern Italy. Uh, perhaps I, perhaps I should explain first of all. There's uh, there's a, there's a um, Terminological debate going on here. Uh, ancient historians tend to, tend to refer to these, co- these people as the Gauls, um, because that's what the Romans call them, the Galli. Uh, archaeologists tend to, t- t- tend to refer to them as Celts. Um, so if I interchange Gauls and Celts, I'm actually talking about the same people, they're not two, two, two separate people. Um, I mean, because I because I, I sort of live in the in the interface between ancient history and archaeology. I, I I have a methodological problem with this. I, I, I tend to I tend to tend to change the terms.
0: So you're you if I'm talking... You're ambidextrous, uh, Catherine. Yes, uh yes. A Scholarly ambidextrous.
1: <laughs> yes, an ambidextrous archaeologist. Um, I mean, the I mean, they're, they're, they're an interesting people because. Um, in the ancient world, well, you know, in, in the understanding of uh, ancient geographical writers uh, and, the, and indeed the Romans themselves, uh, Italy ends with the River Po. It's basically what we've now refer to as Peninsular Italy. Uh, anything north of that is, is regarded as Celtic or Gallic territory. Um, and the reason for that is that um, it had been subject to long-term gradual migration from Celtic areas of Uh, southern France and central Europe uh, for quite a number of of centuries. Um, I mean really from the end of the sixth century onwards we start finding Celtic um, names, Celtic um, objects uh, and evidence of Celtic populations in that area Um, and gradually between the the sixth and fourth century what happens is that the Celts um, and Celtic culture uh, gradually displaced the indigenous Goloseca culture of the, the archaic period. Um, so by the by the end of the fourth century the, the region has really sort of been become linguistically and culturally uh, Celticized if you like. Um, and also the it has tended to split up into uh, three main groups. Um, uh, there's the Sannones who live in uh, what's now Emilio Romagna um on uh, just south of the po uh, there's the boy of the po delta and then there's the interbrace of the of the milan area um and there, are i mean that, that's not an exhaustive list and just the three main groups um but they live in um quite complex organized states i mean they're probably not fully urbanized at this stage, but maybe proto-urban might be the, the best way to describe them Um, We have evidence of local language uh, coming from inscriptions written in Etruscan script, uh, but the language is clearly Celtic, Um, and the material culture of the 4th century is very heavily influenced by the Latin culture, the the predominant Celtic culture of uh, of pre-Roman central Europe. Um, So what we seem to have in in the 6th and the 4th centuries is a gradual process of migration and and cultural cultural change in the area. (laughs) Um, so when we talk about Celts, I mean, if you, if you look at the ancient sources, they tend to, you know, sort of, Celts and Gauls equals barbarians. Uh, but in fact, if you look at the archeological evidence, they, these are not, you know, crazy barbarians. They're actually quite a sophisticated, um, you know, semi-urbanized society. Um, but, um. The other problem that the Romans have is that uh, Celts in Italy don't just involve the urbanised, settled ones in, in the north. Um, Gauls um, and Celts are very heavily in demand as mercenaries uh, by all sorts of people. And in fact, one of the key employers was actually the Greek city of Syracuse in Sicily. Uh, so there are several episodes in uh, recorded sources in which which talk about Gallic invasions of Italy. And what this seemed to be seems, seems what most of these seem to be are gr- big groups of, of Gallic mercenaries who are troops for hire making themselves making their way down, down through Italy with a view to employment in, in Syracuse um, and supporting themselves by raiding and pillaging as they go. Um, and Rome is very nervous of these, uh, and for very good reason. Uh, because in the early 4th century, um, 390 or 386, depending on which which chronology you believe, um, a huge army of Gauls comes down through Italy, absolutely squashes the Roman army at the Battle of the Alia, uh, and sacks Rome itself. And that's this huge sort of traumatic sort of cultural memory in Rome. You know, the the, the anniversary of the Alia is is basically, you know, a sort of big black day in the Roman calendar. so uh, Rome is very nervous about the Gauls, uh, and that makes it actually quite difficult to evaluate the sources because um, they don't really dif- differentiate between the Celtic states who are just there doing their thing and minding their own business in northern Italy, uh, and these bands of marauding warriors who you know uh, are, are associated very much with you know with Gauls, he calls barbarians. Um, so there's no doubt that although, you know, some of the Celtic states in Northern Italy are quite happily finding their own business and, you know, living their own lives, so that Rome does have a, a Gallic problem as well. Um, and we know that in uh, 296 BC, for instance, uh, the Celts or some of the Celts uh, joined an anti-Roman alliance uh, of ungrians Etruscans and Sammites uh, as part of the Third Samnite War. Um, and... Um,
0: Rome, in this case, uh, defeated the, this horse decisively at the Battle of Centinum in
1: 295. Um, but it, it does show that the Celts, you know, do see Rome as a threat, that they, 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 they're prepared, more, more willing to band with other Italians to try, to try and push back against the Romans and to ally with Rome. Um, and as an upshot of that, uh, by 283, uh, Rome actually has an anecdote an- an- annexed quite a big, a big area of, of, of a territory which had previously belonged to the Senones, one of the three main tribes. Um, it's an area known as the Aga Gallicus, the the Gallic territory uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and they initially kept most of it under state control. Um, the idea was that land which was seized as part of a military operation could either be used to found colonies, it could be sold off, or it could be Kept under state control and let out uh, for rent um, to tenant farmers. Um, and Rome actually hung on to most of the Aga, Aga Gallica, so, though it did found a colony at a place called Sen- Senegalica, uh, modern Senegalia, um, to obviously help control the territory. Um, and that remained the case until uh, 232. Uh, When Gaius Flaminius, who was one of the tribunes of the people, uh, one of the junior magistrates uh, in Rome, had the bright idea of proposing a law to divide up the Aga Gallicus and allot it to Roman settlers. Um, This was controversial for a whole range of reasons, um, not least because historians argue about what exactly this law said and whether it it really existed or whether it's... um, you know, a confusion with some of some of the later uh, land laws uh, of the, the second century. Uh, but assuming it did exist, and I think there's probably good reason to believe it did, uh, what it did was um, divide up the Aga Gallicus and settle probably up to 19,000 Romans and their families in the area. Um, and that, that's quite a lot of new settlers to accommodate all at once for a region. Um, And uh, Polybius uh, actually blames this decision to divide up the Agagallicus and settle this uh, quite substantial new new group of Romans in the in the area uh, as something that uh, fanned hostility amongst the Celtic tribes. Um, he actually thinks that the Celtic populations were spooked by the idea that you know that land was going to be allocated to Romans and. Um, that this was one of the things that actually provoked uh, further warfare in, in Northern Italy. Um, I'd say a lot of modern historians are very skeptical about this and think that there's no real evidence for uh, this being the, the trigger factor, but um, it's indicative of the fact that Rome is, you know, starting to put settlers into that area. Uh, and, and also that the Celtic population see this as a threat. Um, so that seems to be one uh of contention, um, the other is that by 225 BC the Celts are very annoyed indeed with Rome, uh, but frustratingly we don't actually know why. We don't. We don't. We really don't know what set this off. Uh, but we know that the boy, the Insugres, and several other tribes got together and invaded Italy. Um, that's Italy proper, the bit south of the Po. Um, and this caught Rome by surprise, and because they have this cultural memory of what happened in the 390s, they panic and um, set a, a, an emergency census to find out how much manpower is available, um, and uh, send, you know, a fairly substantial army after after the Gauls. Um, at this point, the, the the Celtic army gets as far as Clusium, uh, what's now Cusia in Etruria, uh, which is about 90 miles north of Rome, uh, so it's really not that far away. Um, and they actually defeat one of the roman forces sent after them Uh, but for some reason they then decide having having plundered the area accused that they're going to go back they've sort of made their point Um, and at that point when they turn back uh, the two main roman armies which have been sent after them uh, do a sort of pincer movement and managed to manage to pin them down uh, at a place called telamon which is just north of florence um, and uh, the, the counts were very heavily defeated. Um, so that's kind of one episode. Um, whether it's linked with the uh, settlement of the Aga after in the period after 232 is, is, is basically anybody's guess. Um, I mean, it's, um, you know, there's no obvious cause and effect and there's no obvious indication of what the trigger factor is that set, sets off this, um uh, this invasion of Italy, Um, but it does seem to have brought in a period of several years of um, real Roman concern with what's going on up there. Um, We know that between 225 and 222, there are a series of campaigns in which uh, both of the consuls for those years and their armies, so most of Rome's military manpower, uh, is actually sent up north to the Po Valley and starts steadily pushing northwards. Um and we also know that Rome was offered peace terms by some of the Celtic peoples, uh, which they refused. Uh, so they really do seem to have been quite intent on conquering the area, um, up to and including Milan. Um and that's it, that that that's it that the that, that sort of series of wars of conquest seems to have kept going until about 222. Um and yeah, I think perhaps two indications of why of, of the significance of this is that the victorious commander in the in the in two twenty two Marcellus uh, is actually um, awarded a triumph, uh, which is actually quite significant because one of the weird things about Rome in this period is that um, there aren't that many triumphs awarded, which suggests that there's not a lot of military activity going on. Um, uh, but we know about Marcellus' triumph because he dedicated a new temple of uh, virtus, uh, Virtue, in Rome to to mark the occasion. Um, It was was something that victorious generals often did, that they they would put some of the money uh, that they gained from the war aside and and dedicate a a victory temple to commemorate their their victory. Um, The other thing which uh, Rome did, which is slightly more unusual, uh, is that... uh, it sent envoys off to make a dedication in the uh, century of Apollo at Delphi in Greece uh, to mark the end of the Gallic Wars. Um, and it was actually quite a lavish dedication. It was a big Golden Bull. Uh, so the fact that it's, again, we see them engaging with the Greek world, but also we see the idea that they must have been seriously worried about what was going on in northern Italy because you know, the process of declaring victory is marked with you know, some, something really quite unusual.
0: So there's evidence of uh the, the, the goal the goals Celts um, mm. still we can that's still an interchangeable term in this period, right? When we're talking yeah, sure. okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah. The, the, the goals uh, there's evidence that they they went to Delphi to consult the, the or the oracle or to provide uh, yeah. votive offerings.
1: Um, not uh, no, not, not it wasn't the Gauls. It's the Romans who go to Delphi um, to, to make an, a victory offering to celebrate the, the victory over the Gauls.
0: Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, that's... no, 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 that's fine. I probably misheard it. When um, the Gauls were invading, so the period when they're invading Roman territory south of the Po, is there any evidence that they they settled? Um, at all in those areas in other words did they did they for a period of time uh, a reasonable period of time cl- claim any roman roman territory south of the po earlier on uh, no the
1: the only ones that we know of that were south of the po were the senones mm-hmm. who lived uh, in the sort of bologna area um, but the 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 problem about evaluating the, 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 the Celtic phenomenon in, as a sort of historic, historical phenomenon is that if you look at the archaeology you've got this picture of you know just the Celtic people who settle you know and live their own lives in, in, in northern Italy if you look at the ancient sources they obsess about you know raving barbarian war bands sort of coming down through the peninsula raiding all over the place and plundering. Um, and I, I think the the way the, what we're actually looking at is two, is two, is two different phenomena the, the, the Celts who settle um, you know who are mostly north of the Po with the exception of the Sinones, um, and there are the ones who are in their living as mercenaries uh, who obviously are sort of mobile war bands uh, who tend to roam around all over the place and they're, they're the ones who make a nuisance because they live by well, basically they live off the land they, they, as, they, as they're passing through um, until they get to wherever they're going, where they think they can find work. Um, and I think that this is part of the problem, that the, the sources tend to conflate the the two. Um, but there's no doubt that the Celts do, do have a, a very wary eye on run because um, the peoples who joined the alliance that, uh, with the Samnites in the run-up to the Battle of Santinum in 295 uh, seem to be... People who are settled in Italy, uh, but I think in, in as far as people actually set, Celts actually settling south of the Po, not not in any apart from the Sinones, not, not in any great great quantity. The the ones who settle tend to be the ones who are uh, settle in uh, areas of, of, of northern Italy. Um, I some get a little bit further east. The um, there's some interesting inter- interactions between the the Celts and the um, people who are. Northeast Italy, the, the, known, known in the ancient world as the Veneti, who um, lived in what I want now the modern Veneto. Um, but in as far as Celts settling much south of the Po, not, not in any great, great quantity other, other than the Senones and the, Sanana, the Aga, Agagallicas.
0: Okay. Do you want to, Catherine, cover uh, the circumstances? This came up in the last episode, that we did um, with uh, Carthage after the first Punic War, um, do you want to cover, the, uh, more in summary because we did a whole episode o- on it, but for the sake of time, um, do you want to cover the circumstances around Rome uh, annexing uh, Sardinia and Corsica, and then we'll work our way to some, some wrap-up items in the episode? I,
1: um... Yeah, the Sardinia and Corsica um, issue was, really does go back to what we covered last time, uh, which was that um, there was a, a civil war effectively in Carthage uh, in the uh, 230s. Um, and that involved uh, Carthage's mercenary army and, and some of its allies revolting. And some of the, pe- some of the rebels got onto Sardinia and Corsica, which were that, at that stage Carthaginian protectorates. Um, and uh, set about attacking the Carthaginian garrison. And what happened was that uh, Carthage actually sent some of its own troops out there to, to suppress this revolt on the, on the two islands that it controlled. Um, but the problem was that uh, that infringed the treaty with Rome. The, P- the Peace Treaty of 241 had uh, said that uh, Carthage couldn't wage war outside its own territories without the permission of Rome. And this was very arguable because, of course, these two territories were at that stage controlled by Carthage. And therefore, you know, in one interpretation, they weren't moving outside their own territory. Um, But Rome took a very hard line on this and came back to Carthage and said, you've infringed the treaty. um, Therefore, we're going to impose further penalties on you. And those two penalties were basically that Rome would uh, eject Carthage from the two islands and take them over. Um, and they became the second Roman province, the province, of, of, of course, of current Sardinia. Um, and they, they also wrapped up the Carth- Carthage's war indemnity by another 1,200 talents. Uh, so although Carthage was in, fact, was in many ways it, 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 um, defending its own territory uh, by its interpretation, uh, Rome actually came back to it and, and said, no, you can't do that under this treaty, and, and, and therefore took... Uh, another slice of Carthaginian treaty, and then, then then imposed this extra financial penalty. Um, so in many ways, it was Rome really being quite quite hardline and quite mean about how it was interpreting the, the Treaty of 241.
0: Okay, in closing, Catherine, do you want to share what the circumstances uh, were that uh, caused the the second? Um, Punic War and um, as I had mentioned earlier in the episode you and I have a recording coming up so the show is going to f- cover a full episode um, on the second Punic War um, but to uh, wrap up this episode do you want to share what the circumstances were that caused the the, the second Punic War?
1: Okay um, well the basic problem here that Rome had was that Carthage had um uh, started to develop an uh, imperial ambitions in Spain, um, and had conquered quite a quite a lot of Spain uh, by this stage to compensate for its loss of territories in the on the on the on the Mediterranean islands. And by two twenty six or two twenty five, Rome was getting quite worried about this. Uh, so they concluded another treaty, the so-called Ebro Treaty, which established the river Ebro as the the frontier between the Carthaginian sphere of interest and and the Roman sphere. So anything south of the river was Carthage's um, area of of influence, and anything north of the the river was uh, Rome's area area of influence, which was partly to prevent Carthage's territorial ambitions, uh, because Rome was obviously worried that Carthage was starting to rebuild its power. Um, but it was also intended to stop the Carthaginians and the Gauls joining up because, as we said earlier on, the Roman, Rome is quite worried about the Gauls and, and what they might be getting up to in northern Italy and whether they might be a power that could turn against Rome. And it really wants to stop Carthage and the Gauls making, making a common cause, uh, partly because it knows that the Gauls already serve in Carthage's army as mercenaries, so there is already a connection there um so that's basically the uh, circumstances which which cause the outbreak of war uh, because uh, the city of saguntum which is south of the river ebro appeals is besieged by hannibal in 219 and appeals to rome for help um now rome should under the treaty should have said no to that request but indeed instead, instead it says yes uh, hannibal takes no notice and sacks the city anyway and that that's the incident that really causes the war to break out um and that that's possibly something something that could be. Perhaps explore in a bit more detail in the, the next next episode. It's probably a good point to uh, leave it at this point. Yeah,
0: not getting into too much more detail. Sounds sounds good, Catherine. Always yeah. a pleasure uh, having you on the show. Thank you again for coming on the show. Okay, I'll okay. enjoy coming back again. <laughs> so again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Lomis wrote, *The Rise of Rome* and Rome and the Western Greeks, 350 BC to AD 200. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Catherine and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.